So as we're in this season of Advent, this season of waiting, I want to ask you all a question. What are you waiting for? It's the title of the sermon today. We'll come back around to it at the end. But ask yourself this question literally. What thing or event are you waiting for? I bet some of us right now are waiting for Christmas. When I was a little kid, I remember it felt like December took forever because you were waiting for Christmas morning to come, mostly because you wanted to see what you got for presents, right? But you were anticipating something. And especially when you were a kid, it felt like it took forever. Right now, I'm in the same boat as a lot of the college students who might be in here. I'm just waiting for my finals to be done. I'm in seminary right now. I'm just right coming up to the end of my fall semester, and I have exams and a term paper to finish. I'm just waiting for that to be done so I can get to Christmas. But some of you might be waiting for things that are a little bit more serious than that. Some of you might be waiting for a new job to come along, waiting for a crazy season of life to pass so things can slow down. Maybe you're waiting to find a husband or a wife. It could be any number of big things that we wait for. And as we think about waiting, I want us to realize that there are different ways that we approach waiting based on the thing that we are waiting for. Later this week, I have a dentist appointment. And I'm not waiting for that because I'm like looking forward to it. But when I'm going to be sitting later this week in the waiting room at the dentist's office, it's going to be mostly a passive waiting. Right? I'm going to be sitting there. Maybe I'll read a magazine that they have sitting around. Maybe I'll be flipping through my phone. But I'm mostly not going to be doing anything. It's a passive waiting. But for me, as I'm, as I'm preparing and waiting for my finals, and for any college students or any other students, as you are waiting for a test to come, it's not passive waiting, is it? It better not be passive waiting. It should be very active. You should be reading through your books. You should be making flashcards and flipping through them. You should be reading through your notes, making sure that you are prepared for that thing that you are waiting for. So there is passive waiting, and there is active waiting. Our passage this morning in Luke 12, it, it deals largely with what it looks like for us to wait for Jesus, for us to wait for his return. And again, this passage is perfect for Advent. I was so excited a few weeks ago when I flip forward and Luke to see where I was going to be and realize we're going to be, I'm going to be preaching about the waiting for Jesus to return in Advent. How perfect is it that we, that we intentionally lined things up that way, right, Josh? We were definitely thinking about that when we planned all of this. But what's so great about this passage is that it doesn't just tell us that we should be waiting. It tells us how we should be waiting. What does waiting for Jesus actually look like? The idea is that it's not a passive waiting. It's not like sitting in the waiting room at the dentist's office. Waiting for Jesus is active waiting. So let's go this morning into Luke 12, verses 35 through 48, to go to God's word. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Again, Luke 12, 35 through 48. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and on an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. O Father, speak to us in your word. Transform us more and more into the image of Christ, even as we wait for his return. We pray, amen. So like I said, right at the heart of this passage is the second coming of Jesus. I was trained in my time with InterVarsity. When I read a passage, I should try to make observations. One of the very basic observations you can make is to look for repeated words. And if you look at these 14 verses, the word come, or some variation of the word come, is used 10 times, 10 times in 14 verses. Again, right at the heart of this is the coming, the coming of Jesus. But before we talk about why the coming of Jesus matters, I want to do a quick theological overview of this passage. This is our little eschatology lesson for the morning. Eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. So I know some of you might get really interested right away when I say I'm going to talk some eschatology. But this passage speaks to it, so I just want to overview what it's saying. Jesus wants us to know a few very basic things about his return in this passage. First, Jesus' return is certain. He is coming back. Right? That's why all of this, this language of coming is here. Jesus is coming back. So that's first. Second, Jesus' return is unpredictable. That's also repeated through this passage. That's the point of verses 39 and 40. 
just like the owner of a house can't predict when a thief is going to come in and steal his things, we don't know at what hour Jesus is going to return. So he says, be ready. And we see that again in verse 46, almost the same language here. The master will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. So when we talk about the coming of Jesus, and even as we look at this passage, I'm not going to pull out some huge chart, and I'm not going to try to figure out exactly where we are in the end times, and I'm not going to try to make these predictions about this is the exact day, this is the time when Jesus is going to return, because he actually tells us we don't know. The point is that we can't predict when Jesus is going to return. So first, Jesus' return is certain. Second, Jesus' return is unpredictable. And then third, you see that Jesus' return will bring blessing and judgment. Two times in this passage, verse 37, verse 43, we see the word blessed, and it's referring to a faithful servant, servant who does what his master requires. He is blessed. And then in verses 46 through 47, we also see that the return of the master brings judgment upon an unfaithful servant. Pretty severe judgment. So when Jesus returns... He's going to come as a victorious king. He's going to come and bring blessing for his people. But as we saw even in the Westminster Confession, chapter 33, when Jesus returns, it's going to also come with judgment. So if you're going to summarize kind of the main theological point of this passage, it's that Jesus' return is certain yet unpredictable, bringing blessing and judgment. Jesus' return is certain yet unpredictable, bringing blessing and judgment. So the, the sermon's over, right? We got our theological lesson for the morning, our few little points of theology and eschatology. So right now we can go home. It's not even noon yet. We can eat an earlier lunch than we normally do on Sunday. Wrong. No, the passage isn't over just because we've understood a couple of the eschatology points in this passage. It's much more than that. The main point of these parables that Jesus tells in this passage is not just to give us a short theology lesson. It's to give us massive practical life applications. And that's why I wanted you to pay attention in the Westminster Confession. In chapter 33, they do such a good job of not just telling us that Jesus is going to return and bring judgment, but that that actually matters for the way that we live. There was language of there, it deters men from sin. It's a consolation to the godly in adversity that we may shake off carnal security, that we may be watchful and be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus. There's two, I think, main ways that we treat eschatology completely wrong. And the first one is when we treat eschatology and the doctrine of the last things is primarily this, this code for us to crack. That there's this secret little knowledge hidden in there that if we just spend all of our time, maybe we'll figure out that little hidden gem of meaning but we ignore the bigger thing that's going on. But then secondly, we can also look at eschatology and say, it's way too complicated, it's way too impractical, so I'm just gonna ignore it altogether. And that's just as wrong as only focusing on all these little codes to crack in eschatology. Eschatology and Jesus' return for Jesus himself and for all the authors throughout the New Testament is extremely practical. In fact, it's treated in the New Testament as one of the single most practical branches of theology. Wherever you run into language about the return of Jesus, it's to comfort those who are suffering. 
It's to give confidence to those who are being persecuted. It's to encourage us to flee from sin. It's to encourage us to pursue godliness. It's constantly drawing us to live for Christ. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. We don't see this this attitude of Jesus is coming back someday, and when he comes back, he's going to fix everything, he's going to make everything right, so I can, it doesn't really matter how I live right now, right? How we live right now matters precisely because Jesus is coming back again. It makes a huge difference for how we live. So the big idea for this morning is going to incorporate both of those things, the theological center of the passage and also what that means for our lives today. Because Jesus' return is certain and unpredictable, bringing blessing and judgment, theological center here, we must live lives of active waiting. Because Jesus' return is certain and unpredictable, bringing blessing and judgment, we must live lives of active waiting. We're going to have two points today. I know we usually have three, so I don't want to throw you off too much. Both of these points, we're going to look at what active waiting looks like. What does it mean to actively wait for Jesus? And our first point, we're going to look at verses 35 through 40. First point is that active waiting means expectant preparation. Active waiting means expectant preparation. Look with me to verses 35 and 36. Jesus uh, tells those who are listening three things that they're to do. First, he says, stay dressed for action. Second, keep your lamps burning. And then third, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at, a, at once when he comes and knocks. And the idea in all of these is expectant preparation. The first one, stay dressed for action. If you've heard the term, gird up your loins. That's what this is talking about. Gird up your loins. People in that day and culture had long flowing robes. So if if you were going to run, if you're going to do any, any like intense activity, you had to take your robe and you had to tuck it into your belt so that you could move freely. And he's saying, keep that robe tucked in. Gird up your loins. Stay ready. Stay ready for service. Be prepared for anything that you might need to do. Second one, the second image here, keep your lamps burning, also points to preparation. If there was an enemy attacking and they were coming, you had to keep your lamps burning. If they attacked in the middle of the night, you needed to be able to flee. You need to be able to see. In the case of the parable that's going to come, if you were to be able to welcome home a master who had come in the middle of the night, you needed to be ready for him to come. You needed your lap, lap, lamps burning, keep the light going, and that took activity right? It took regular upkeep. It would take preparation. And then we have a parable in verse 36. And the parable is of a master who's gone off to a wedding feast. And because wedding feasts in that day could last for multiple days, the servants wouldn't know exactly when the master was going to return. So they had to be ready at any time. He could even come in the middle of the night. That's the point of verse 38. That's the the idea of the second or third watch. It's referring to the middle of the night. This this master might return in the middle of the night. Are you going to be ready? And we see the good servants were so ready for their master return that the instant he came and he knocked on that door, they were standing there ready. 
They were able to open that door in an instant and to welcome their master home. So they were looking forward to his coming, and they were also prepared for him to arrive. So we need to be like those good servants. We need to be waiting and watching and preparing for our master to return. So Jesus' return, it doesn't encourage lukewarmness or idleness, right? It encourages us to serve him now, to gird up our loins, to be prepared for action, to be prepared even now to do whatever our master might call us to do. So I ask you, are you prepared for Jesus to return? Are you ready? And we should want to be prepared because we should want to serve our master because we love him. Also because there's blessing promised to us if we're prepared. That's a legitimate and okay motivation for us to be prepared, that there's blessing awaiting us. Jesus even points to that. If you look at verse 37, I love this verse. It's incredible. It says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And this is really incredible here. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. For the servants who are ready, the master comes and instead of them serving him a meal, he puts on the servant garb, the servant robes, right? And he goes and he sits his servants down at the table and he gives them a meal. This is incredible. The verb here, the, the root of the verb for, that, for him to, to dress as a servant is the same root for dressing for action that we saw in the first verse. So for the servants who dressed for action, their master would dress in service. He would bless them. We should long for that. We should desire for when our Savior returns that he sits us at his table. He sits us at his feast and he serves us. How incredible that our master would do that. So be prepared. Be prepared so that you experience that. A great blessing from our Savior. So we've seen active waiting means expectant preparation. And uh, let's move on to our second point here. That active waiting means faithful stewardship. In verse 41, we see that Peter does what Peter kind of always seems to do. And he responds to Jesus. And again, in totally Peter fashion, he asks, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Is this, is this parable that you just told primarily really just for us disciples over here? Or are you really telling this kind of for the whole crowd? And then Jesus does what he almost always seems to do, and he doesn't give a direct answer. He doesn't say, all right, Peter, yes, it's for you, or no, it's for everybody. Instead, he tells a parable. He tells another parable. Again, such a Jesus response here, which is so great. And he starts this parable in verse 42. So look with me there. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his house to give them their food at the proper time. So this parable, it has some similarities to the first. Here we have a master who's departing. And because he's leaving, he takes one of his servants and he sets him up as a manager over his household to make sure that the other servants and the rest of the household is well cared for and fed. The word manager here, it carries the idea of a steward, someone who is 
kind of trusted, entrusted with caring for something on behalf of the actual owner of that thing. I really like the, the idea and the translation of steward here. And Jesus gives a picture of two different kinds of stewards or managers in this parable, a faithful steward and an unfaithful steward. I want to look at each of these. So verse, uh, first, Jesus, in verses 43, uh, 44, he tells us about a faithful servant, a faithful steward, and what he does. This faithful steward's charged with caring for the household, as we saw in the previous verse, and that's what he does. Verse 43, 44, we see that, he, that the master comes and he finds him so doing. He finds the servant doing what he was told to do. He was doing it faithfully, and because of that, he received a promotion. He was blessed, just like the prepared servants in the first parable. And I want to make three quick observations for us about faithful stewardship that we see here. First, a faithful steward treats the things entrusted to him as his master's and not as his own. Second, his stewardship is for the good of the household. He's there to make sure that the rest of the household receives their food. He's not put in that position for his own sake, right? He's put in that position for the sake of others. Lexi, my wife, is the oldest of six kids. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. A couple of her little sisters go here to Livingstone. Uh, Lexi regularly had the job, being the oldest, of being a steward, of babysitting, right? That's what a babysitter is, really. They're a steward over people that they're babysitting. Lexi likes to tell one story, and Allie probably remembers this one vividly, of one, one time when she was asked to babysit the rest of her siblings. She was probably like 12 years old. And she did what a good steward does. She wanted to make sure that her siblings were well cared for. It could be really easy if you're the oldest sibling to say, hey, this is my time of power. This is my reign of terror over these other siblings. I'm going to get what I want. No, she cared. She cared for her siblings, right? She wanted to feed them. So what she did is she made what any 12-year-old would make, pizza bagels. Because that's what you make when you're 12 years old. She made pizza bagels. But instead of using pizza sauce on these pizza bagels, she used plain tomato paste, which was apparently, I, I don't ever want to try that, but apparently it was disgusting because the rest of the kids were all complaining. They're saying, ew, gross, we don't want to eat it. And Lexi thought they were just complaining, right? And so she's like, no, you need to eat these pizza bagels. I made these for you. They're good for you. You need to eat your food. And eventually they convinced her to actually try one of them. She ate the pizza bagel. She realized it was disgusting. She felt terrible. So you, what, went to your room crying, and then they all felt bad, and it's, you know, kind of what happens when that happens. But I, I want to point that out, not because Lexi is an example of a bad steward, even though at 12 years old, she didn't really know the difference between pizza sauce and tomato paste. But really because a good steward doesn't use their position for their own good, and her feeding her siblings is what a 12-year-old should do. She was caring for her siblings. We need to do that, right? We need to be people who are looking out for others and not just for ourselves. And thirdly, the, the faithful steward pays careful attention to the words of his master, and he's careful to obey them. That's what we saw when he was so doing. Master had charged him, and he was doing what he had been asked to do. He was listening to the words of his master. 
But then Jesus gives us a picture of an unfaithful steward in the next verses. So look with me to verses 45 to 47. I'm not going to read these, just kind of summarize them for us. What I want us to notice is that the unfaithful steward does the opposite of what the faithful steward does. He reverses kind of all three of those things. First, he doesn't view the things that have been entrusted to him as his masters, but he views them as opportunities for his own pleasure, right? And then because of that, second, he doesn't use his stewardship for the good of the household. He uses the stewardship for his own good. We see that he abused the male and female servants. He stole from the master's food and drink. He got drunk. He was, he was not responsible with his position. He used it for his own pleasure, for his own joy. And then lastly, he didn't listen to the master's words. So verse 47 tells us, tells us of a wicked servant who knows his master's will and doesn't obey. So it's a picture of knowing what your master told you to do. You know what you should do, but you choose to not obey. And this all stems from what we see right at the beginning. He didn't think that his master was returning anytime soon. He thought, I got plenty of time here. You know, my master, maybe he'll be back in a month. Maybe we'll be back in a couple months. But right now, I got plenty of time to just kind of have fun. He makes the same mistake that the, that the rich fool back in verse 19 and 20 of this chapter made. That rich fool, he stored up all these things for himself. And he said, look, I got years ahead of me. I got all this time of comfort, all this time of pleasure. But he didn't take account for the fact that the Lord at any moment could require his soul from him, which he did that night. And here, this unfaithful steward says, I got all the time in the world, right? I can, I can do what I want. But no, the master returns when he's not expecting him. He returns at a day that he does not know, an hour he does not expect. And he brings punishment. And this punishment is very severe. It says that he cut him into pieces and cast him away with the unfaithful, Right? And that cut in pieces literally means to cut in half. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament. It's really severe, right? We should read that and go, that's uncomfortable. Jesus says uncomfortable things. He was intentionally trying to shock his listeners, to wake them up. And we need to hear that too. We need to be woken up by Jesus' words. We need to say, that's, that's surprising. That's shocking that he would cut up his servant, that he'd cast him away, that he would utterly reject this unfaithful steward. But that's exactly what he does. But it's not that that punishment is unjust, right? And that's why Jesus includes verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, so the servant who hadn't heard the commands of his master, and, but still does what displeases the master, and we would say, you know, even for people who have not heard the word of God, that no one is fully ignorant, right? But there's a different level of ignorance for someone who has actually not heard God's word versus us who are sitting here. We're hearing God's word. We're hearing from his commandments. And more is required of us because we have heard. Because we've heard God's word. We've heard his commandments. And so the punishment is so severe because the steward knew what he should have done. And that should wake us up because we know what we should do. It should wake us up because we've heard the gospel. We've been called to respond to it. So if we don't, there's an extra level of accountability for us. Excuse me. Better. 
there's a different level of accountability for us, right? More is required of those to whom much has been given. Now I want to just apply that to second for us. Remember that Peter asked if the, the previous parable was about the disciples, really, or just about the, the whole crowd. Really, the answer is yes. It's for the disciples. It's for ministers and officers, people who are charged with overseeing and caring for the household of God. It's for them in a, in a unique way. And it's also for all Christians. So I want to look at just our final applications, both to Christian leaders and officers and ministers and to all Christians. So this is my opportunity to look at Josh, stare at him, preach right to him, but also to, to preach to you guys who are in the officers training, the people who are aspiring to Christian leadership, pay attention to this. And even if you're not, pay attention so that you can know how to pray for your leaders, because this is really important. What we need to see is that the call to be a faithful steward over the household of God is a very serious calling. First, if we're looking at kind of the three pieces of stewardship, first, the congregation that you serve, Josh, and any prospective leader in our congregation, the congregation you serve is not your own. You don't own Livingstone Church. It's not yours. Livingstone Church belongs to your master, and he is coming back. Second, you exist for the care of the church. You must make sure that the household of God is fed the true word of God, the true food that comes from heaven as you preach, when you preach Christ. But especially be aware of the temptation to utilize your position for your own gain, your own purposes, and your own pleasure. The Lord, uh, in Ezekiel 34, the Lord condemns unfaithful shepherds over the people of Israel, unfaithful leaders. And I want you to hear these words and kind of see how they connect with our passage in Luke 12. The Lord says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So shepherds, shepherd the flock, knowing that your chief shepherd is going to return. And as Hebrews 13, 17 says, you will have to give an account for the way that you are a shepherd, the way that you rule. You're accountable to your master who is coming back. Much has been entrusted to you, so much is demanded. Bind up the injured, care for the weak, chase down the straying, seek the lost, and as a good steward, feed the household. And lastly, pay attention to the words of your master. It's his words that provide direction for your work, it's not your own whims. It's not what you want to do, not your own desires. Before you bring the word of God to other people, know that you've paid attention to it yourself. Pay attention to the words of your master. Now I want to speak to everybody here. This applies to all Christians. First, 
I want you to know that the people who are called to care for the household of God, people who are called as officers and ministers in the church, are called to that calling for your good, right? The, the good and faithful manager and steward is there for the good of the household. And if you go back into Ephesians 13, 17, we're called to submit, our, submit to our leaders and to obey our leaders because they have been charged with keeping watch over our souls. It's for our good. And yes, they have to give an account. But we need to take that calling seriously and take their calling seriously as we listen to those who have been called to shepherd us. And then secondly, all Christians, I don't care who you are, all Christians have been given gifts for the service of God's people. We've been given different gifts, but we need to steward those gifts, recognizing that they belong to God, they come from him, and they're given to me for the good of everybody else. And so let's not look out for ourselves first. Let's say, what has God given me that I can bless this congregation, that I can bless my brothers and sisters? Because what's been given to you has been given for the good of the church, the good of God's people. And you too are accountable for the things that have been given to you. Everybody is accountable for what the Lord has given. So let's all be faithful stewards. Let's all be faithful servants in Christ's house. Because Jesus' return is certain and unpredictable, bringing blessing and judgment, we li must live lives of active waiting, which means, being, which means expectant preparation, being prepared for our master to come. It also means faithful stewardship. So as we come here to our time to take the Lord's Supper, I just want to remind us of something that Josh does such a good job of reminding us of uh, so often when we take the Lord's Supper. And it's that the Lord's Supper both looks backward and forward. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as you take the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death. You look back. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look forward to the coming of our Lord. So this morning as we come, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we look forward to the day that our master returns, our passage here in Luke 12 also asks us to look inward. We're told two verses later in 1 Corinthians 11, 28, let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So before we come to the table, I want it to give us a moment here to examine ourselves and to examine ourselves in light of Jesus' words in Luke 12. Jesus said, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Are you ready? Are you prepared for the coming of Jesus? And I just want to ask three questions to help you examine your own heart. So listen to these. Ask these questions of yourself. First, am I trusting in Jesus' death to pay the penalty that I deserve for my sin? Do I believe in Christ? Do I have faith in him? Am I trusting in Jesus' death? Second, am I showing evidence of repentance in my life? Am I confessing my sin? Am I more and more turning from my sin and becoming more and more like Christ.
Are you evidencing repentance in your life? And then third, am I responding with thankfulness for my salvation and love for God by serving Christ and his church with my whole life? Am I responding with thankfulness for my salvation and love for God by serving Christ and his church with my whole life? I want you to ask those three questions of yourself. And if you're unsure about your answer to any three of those questions, then I have just one more question for you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Christ is coming at an hour you do not expect. Make sure that you are ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that Christ is coming. And we even praise you that he is coming, that we can look forward with hopeful expectation and know that if we are in him, his coming is the greatest thing that we can long for. But also that we can take the warning seriously that if we're not in him, that we're going to be cast away, that the judgment is coming. So God, help us to be prepared. Help us to serve Christ now. Help us to use the gifts that he has given us so that in this time as we're longing for his return, we can serve Christ's people faithfully and that we can be blessed when he comes back as, a faithful, as faithful servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.